Welcome to Stories of Communism, the podcast where we review and discuss the first-hand testimony of those who lived through the horrors of communism over the past century. This is Eric Seligman, your co-host, along with Manuel Castaneda, recording from the suburbs of Portland, Oregon. Apologies for the delay in getting this episode out. We wanted to try something different and got delayed a bit by logistical issues. Till now, we've focused on the written records of communism, but of course there are a lot of living people who have knowledge and experience in this area. A few episodes ago, we discussed Iris Diaz's memoir of Cuban communism around the time of Fidel Castro's revolution. But today we'll be discussing a very different aspect of Cuban communist society. Manuel and I were surprised to be contacted by a filmmaker named Jesus Arzola Vega, who's working on a documentary about the anarcho-capitalist movement in Cuba and the growth of private business. Apparently, a lot has changed since Fidel Castro stepped down. Here's our interview of Jesus, where he discussed more details about this topic and the personal stories of some of those struggling to advance capitalist ideas in Cuba today. So, um, can, can you start again by telling us about um, how you uh, got involved with Cuba and started working on this film? First of all, thank you, gentlemen, for taking the time to, to do this. I don't know if I said that last week, but just... <laughs> thanking you guys for the work you do. I just want to get that out of the way right off the bat. Um, you know, it's important that you spread these libertarian ideas and, and tell these stories. But uh, anyhow, so you wanted me to just kind of recap uh, the, the Cuba film project? Yeah, yeah. So um, to talk about uh, how you uh, first uh, got involved with Cuba and got started working on your film. Yeah, so... <clears throat> I've always been interested in Cuban history. It has a, a very unique history that goes without saying. Um, I am not Cuban. I'm Mexican-American. I'm a Mexican immigrant myself. But I've just always been fascinated by, by the history ever since I first learned about the Cuban Missile Crisis in probably middle school, uh, middle school civics. But anyhow, um, ever since uh, relationship, the relationship between the United States and Cuba opened up, I thought about visiting. And then last year, I was able to finally um, realized that dream. And I went with uh, just my brother and a few cousins. And originally, I was just planning on going and hanging out, exploring, um, checking out some of the historical sites, taking some photos. But just prior, a few weeks prior to my trip, which was in September of last year, 2017, um, my friend Ford, who uh, is also a, a filmmaker and also a libertarian, Ford Fisher is his name, he's based in D.C., um, he reached out to me and he's like, Hey man, while you're down there, you should collect some footage of, um, of some of these, uh, libertarians who are in Cuba trying to start a movement or talk to them or connect with them somehow. And, um, I talked to him about that. One thing led to another. And basically he connected me via Facebook with a, a gentleman named Nelson Rodriguez Chertrand, who is the leader of the self-proclaimed anarcho-capitalista or anarcho-capitalist movement in Cuba. And I ended up interviewing him in September. Um, He told me his life story, which is really fascinating. And then I started editing the footage, started kind of gathering ideas and time went by. And then in Memorial Day weekend of this year, I went back because I had decided that I didn't have enough footage and had not collected enough stories. So I interviewed Nelson again. Um, one of his students, because he has a like a neoliberal economic school, um, it's only nine students, but I interviewed one of his students and um, a business owner. So uh, that's where I'm at with the project now, and the working title is just The Libertarians of Cuba. 
um, and hopefully it'll be wrapped up within a few months. That's great. Um, so can you tell us more about uh, Nelson's story? Um, how did he get started and uh, how was he treated when he first started talking about these ideas? Yeah, so Nelson is a lawyer by trade. Um, he's always been a little bit rebellious in, in his own way, he told me since he was a child. And he's always uh, dreamt about getting off the island and exploring the world. Um, unfortunately, the, the harsh reality is that he will most likely live out his entire life and die on the island. Um, unless things change radically soon. But Nelson's, a, like I said, he's a lawyer by trade. Um, he also studied economics. And it wasn't until his mid-20s, I believe, that he was able to um, have access to any information at all about alternative economic systems outside the realm of communism. He got his hand on um, some books through some friends, I guess, um, on Austrian, on the on basically materials um, from the Austrian school of economic thought. And those are more liberal, libertarian about free market. He got his hands on some stuff by Adam Smith. Um, I also studied economics. So I kind of identified with him a lot when he talked about his passion and interest in alternative economic ideas, excuse me. And anyhow, that's, that's where his curiosity of economics comes from. And when he learned that, oh, hey, it turns out there's other systems we can try other than communism and they actually worked out pretty well turns out there's this thing called capitalism he just kind of went all in and he um started spreading these ideas um eventually created a school with with some illegal books and he also created a library with these illegal books and he began spreading these ideas government caught wind of it um arrested him a couple of times um and it's, it's almost become like a regular thing now. Um, in the last few years, they've allowed him to have his school, but no more than nine students at a time is the limit that he's allowed to have. And if he's in the wrong place at the wrong time, like if Raul Castro is taking a trip through the neighborhood that he happens to be in and someone tips off the police, they may just arrest him for literally being around and potentially being a nuisance to the dictator. So... Um, he has a he has an interesting relationship with the authorities. They kind of allow him to do his own thing, so long as he's not very influential, and he just persists nonetheless. So, did he spend significant time in jail for any of his previous arrests? Yeah. So the very first time it was about ten years ago, if I'm not mistaken. I think in '08, he spent about a year in jail, and then after that, I think he was free for a while. And then another year, I'm not sure what the specific incidents were. Um, I just know they were related to him trying to spread his ideas and possibly trying to organize protests, which is just something that's unheard of in Cuba. Um, but and ever since those two big sentences about a decade ago, he's just kind of had periodic arrests where he may be arrested for anywhere from a few hours at a time, just literally put away for a few hours um, to a few days to occasionally a few weeks. They've, they, it almost seems as though the, the authorities have kind of become a little sympathetic to his cause in a way. Um, so now it's just kind of like a every few weeks kind of thing, I guess. Oh, so that's interesting. So, so you're saying that his, his treatment by the government's gotten a little more lenient in recent years. 
Is this part of sort of yeah. an overall opening in Cuba where they're becoming more uh, open-minded about private enterprise and people starting businesses and things like that? Yes. The short answer is yes, little by little. Um, because as both of you know, you know, uh, Fidel retired from government, officially stepped down from his position publicly in 2008, if I'm not mistaken, handed over the, the um, dictator, the, the role of the dictator to his brother. And since then, um, his brother issued a lot more licenses for people to open up private businesses. And then since Raul's, excuse me, since Fidel's death, um, even more licenses were given out and everyone in Cuba and Havana and in some of the bigger cities is trying to become a um, either like a, a casa particular owner, which is when you have a better breakfast operation, a paladar owner, which is when you run a privately owned restaurant, or um, just selling artisanal things or offering services like like a cab ride. You know, so everyone's trying to get into the tourist industry, and that's transformed Cuba in the last ten years. And I think that also is certainly related to the treatment of Nelson. I think in the last 10 years, people are like, we're all kind of acting in the capitalist way. We're all trying to start businesses. So why do we treat this guy so bad? You know, I think maybe that's the mindset of the cops. They're like, okay, we need to do our jobs. We need to put this guy away because my boss's boss told me to do so. Um, and I can't not obey. But I'm also trying to maybe start a business myself. So I kind of have some sympathy for this guy. Maybe that's their mindset, you know? Well, that sounds very interesting, uh, Jesus. I I think uh, are there more people like him around, or do you think he's kind of a lonely soul around there? Um, I think certainly a lot of Cubans share his mentality. A lot of Cubans would love to be business owners or expand their businesses beyond what is permissible. However, I don't think I think he's alone in in taking action. I think a lot of Cubans. I think all Cubans really, or most of them have entrepreneurial mindsets. That's the great irony of communism is that it tends to create very entrepreneurial, very capitalist, ambitious people who want to get ahead. Um, so I think a lot of Cubans certainly share his ideas of wanting more individual liberty um, and the ability to get ahead in life through one, through, you know, to the sweat of your own brow. But few Cubans share with him the ability to put that in action for, for fear and understandably so, you know, for fear of repression and, and being arrested or just having your life ruined by the government. Yeah. So, so by the way, speaking of the climate of fear, I think you also mentioned the story of a uh, waitress who you met that I thought was also kind of interesting. Maybe you could uh, walk us through that. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I recall one day I was walking around near this um, near this market with um, my brother and my cousins back in September of last year, and we stopped by a place to eat. This man actually stopped us in the alley we were walking through, and he's like, hambre, are you hungry? Venga paca, like, come this way, and he led us somewhere, which is not uncommon. Um, a lot of people probably get paid commission to do that, but anyhow, um, he led us to this restaurant. We were just hanging out, eating, and then this man and woman, presumably a couple, came, um, the man was playing guitar, the woman was uh, dancing with maracas and singing, and she sang very well, and they just kind of put on a little show for us. They sang some Celia Cruz covers and um, some other classic songs, and then chatted with us for a while, and they stayed. Uh, they stayed for a while, had a coffee with us, and she told us her story about how 
back in the 80s, she ran a very, very successful, very popular nightclub in Havana. And um, she was also, while being a successful business owner, trying to become um, an artist. She sang and danced and played the maracas really well. And she just had a really great voice. And she was doing super well for herself um, in both careers as a business owner, bar and restaurant owner and nightclub owner. And then also her singing. She was becoming somewhat famous in Havana um, and all over the country. And she kind of wanted to expand. She wanted to, you know, maybe go on a tour around the world or go travel some more. Um, and because she was a smart woman with common sense, she wasn't going to go out in the streets and express her disapproval because personally, she really disapproved of the government, of the way things were run. She was not a fan of the Castros, to say the very least. Um, so she would only express those attitudes and opinions in private conversations in very private settings. Um, however, what ended up happening was she got a little too popular in the eyes of the government and a little too influential. And I guess in conversations that she had assumed were private or closed off or there wasn't anyone listening, uh, word got out to Communist Party authorities that she was being anti-revolutionary, which is the term you hear again and again, um, very Orwellian term. She was being anti-revolutionary and literally from one day to the next, she was informed that her business was confiscated by the government and immediately shut down. And that's just, you know, tragic because she was doing really well, doing great things. Her career was going really well. And just because she privately expressed disapproval of the government, she had her business taken away. And now she's just, you know, kind of uh, playing at bars and restaurants with her husband. Wow. Uh, Jesus, I I have an interesting question for you, which is, do people there know that other people around the world are living a much better life than they do? And do they know why? Um, I think the, the short, the answer is yes, but the caveat is they do now. And now because of the internet and the accessibility to information, um, because, you know, for the last nearly half a century or a little bit more than half a century now, since the casters have been in power, um, they've had uh, a stranglehold on access to information. So people would only see what the state run media would allow. They'd only rent out books in the library that the, the communist party was okay with. Um, but, now, just I think this is a matter of the last three years. Uh, the government allows access to internet. Um, however, it's incredibly expensive. It comes out to about the equivalent of three U.S. dollars an hour, which is absurd. And to a poor Cuban, that's just completely out of um, out of their reach for for the most part. However, that doesn't mean that um, information isn't spreading because those Cubans who do have the means to access the internet might, you know talk about and share and explain what they see or download videos that they can play over and over again or download news articles or download images, what have you. They can spread the information nonetheless. And also um, information is spread via these things called paquetes, which is the literal Spanish translation is packages. But what it means is uh, some kind of memory or an external hard drive where movies, TV shows, articles, pictures, everything basically everything you and i would get from the internet they they literally physically transport that share it and sell it and 
that's how Cubans get their Game of Thrones. You know, that's how Cubans get their House of Cards. <laughs> and it's fascinating because it's probably maybe there and maybe with, with the exception of North Korea, maybe this happens in North Korea, maybe in some other uh, Central Asian countries, who knows. Um, but that is very, very unique to Cuba that um, media is physically uh, transported rather than electronically. But I guess the short answer to your question is they do, they, they are aware of capitalism and the outside world now, thanks to access to information via the internet and paquetes. Wow, that is very good. I, th I think uh, technology might end up breaking uh, uh, the bondage of so many people around the world because we have seen how people that were not able to get information before or ideas, now they are using uh, uh, social media and technology. So that's just great. Yeah. Yeah. But now, are you, are you worried that there might be a, a government crackdown, like if a new leader comes along, a change in the winds, and suddenly uh, the police will be strictly controlling everything again? And um, in that case, they could use, you know, internet logs and things to track down people to arrest. Yeah, so um, maybe I'm a young, naive optimist, but I really, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so for... For two main reasons, because number one, um, and pardon me if this sounds a little cold or harsh, but the old men are dying off. The the old men from the Castro era, the revolutionaries from from the gone days, they're they're dying off, and with them will die their ideas and these utopian ideas of communism that will never be realized. Um, and I think, unfortunately, it was it's it's quite literally the pride of a few men who were never able to admit that their system was wrong. Their pride led to the suffering of 12 million people. But maybe now these new uh, leaders, this new guy, um, his name escapes me right now, the new president, they just had a new president um, selected not too long ago, uh, Miguel Diaz-Canal. He's kind of a question mark and a mystery. No one really knows much about him. I mean, people know his education. Uh, we know that he managed the national... Um, electrical infrastructure. He studied engineering, and that he's he was buddies with the Castros. Uh, that's about it. <laughs> I mean, not much is known. So that's the second reason. So the so reason number one is is the ideas are dying along with these these old men from the revolutionary age, and people are opening up to new possibilities, and they want more. And the second reason is they do have a new leader now, and he's just kind of a, a mystery. So we're not really sure where he's going to take the country. So, so what would be your advice to people who are curious about Cuba? You think it's okay to visit Cuba and spend our money at the risk of possibly helping to prop up the regime? Yeah, yeah. I tell all my friends, go to Cuba. I, I talk my head off about it when they ask me about my trips. Um, I tell them all, go to Cuba um, because it's going to most likely transform in the next uh who knows? It could be four or five years from now. It could be a decade or two from now. But I think it's inevitable that capitalism will find its way into Cuba and that the entire country will be transformed by it. Um, so it's kind of cool to go check it out now because it's sort of like a, a time traveling trip in a sense because everything is stuck in the 50s and 60s. Um, and in terms of, of supporting the regime, I also always try to mention this to my friends, um, to anyone I talk to. Just make sure you go down there with 
a currency other than U.S. dollars. Because if you go with U.S. dollars, there's an automatic 10% tax on converting those into Cuban convertible dollars. And that 10% goes directly into the pockets of the highest level Communist Party officials. And the way you can avoid that is by just calling up your bank, asking to withdraw X amount of dollars in euros, and then you take those euros to Cuba, and then you avoid giving 10% of your money to the government. Well, sounds like good advice. So, um, yeah. Yeah, so let's see. So uh, we've been uh, speaking for a while. I guess, can you mention again what the name of your movie is and uh, what the website is where people can go to uh, learn more about it? Yeah, sure. So the working title for the for the time being is just called The Libertarians of Cuba. And I have a website. It's just my portfolio dot my name, Jesus Arzola Vega dot com. And I'm probably just going to upload it there and out to my Vimeo channel. Vimeo is, is essentially just like a YouTube, uh, but a little different. Um, so okay, well, why don't you email me the uh, link to make sure I get it right in our show notes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely do that. Jesus, uh, I, it struck me that you said you're an immigrant from Mexico, and so am I. I'm always, oh, no way. Uh, yeah, I'm always fascinated to see how many uh, people from Mexico come here, you know, basically looking for better opportunities. But then once they're here, they tend to buy into the... Uh, progressive ideas of government is going to take care of you and solve all your problems. Why do you think that is? Um, oh, that's a toughie. That's a curveball of a question. Um, I don't know. I think there that um, with young people, with millennials, there is certainly a different mindset because we face a lot of challenges that um, baby boomers or or the prior generation before us, I forgot what they were called, Generation X, I think maybe that's what they were called, people who are now in their 30s and 40s. We face a lot of unique challenges that they did not, and I think we're a little resentful, um, broadly speaking, like the high cost of tuition, for example, higher cost of rent, lower minimum wage, and that leads people to uh, often take what I consider to be a little bit extreme positions sometimes. Um, but also for, for speaking on behalf of the immigrant community, I think the immigrant is just by definition, just objectively speaking, an entrepreneurial person. So whether people know it or not, oftentimes immigrants are, have libertarian ideas, um, whether they're aware of it or not, you know, they, you know, you want to just get what you work for from the sweat of your brow and you don't want anybody to interfere with that. And you're here to work. You're here to get ahead in life. You're here to progress and help yourself and your family and, that's the mindset of the immigrant. And that's also somewhat of a libertarian mindset. So I think there's a great irony in that, that a lot of immigrants are completely unaware of the fact that they're, they have libertarian ideas, you know? Well, that's very interesting. When you were in Cuba, did you see uh, many other immigrants from other countries there or mostly Cubans? Um, no, there's, there's definitely a lot of tourists uh, from Europe and from other parts of Latin America. Uh, what I didn't see too often was other, was Americans um, or Asian tourists. Mostly I would say Europeans and Latin Americans. 
Well, that's very yeah, very good information because I know that a lot of a lot of people who want to go there, they're concerned about the the uh, violating laws that America, uh, the American government has put on uh, U.S. citizens or residents traveling there. How uh, difficult is it to go there legally without risking being uh, being sanctioned or something by the U.S. government? Um, very, very, very easy. Um, I think that maybe 10, 15 years ago would have been a different story. Um, but today it's it's so easy. I mean, by law, by definition, legally, according to the State Department, tourism, ordinary tourism for a U.S. citizen to Cuba is still illegal. But the State Department has 12 categories that allow for permissible travel to Cuba. Some of them are kind of weird, like for religious reasons. If your religion requires you to go to Cuba, then you can go to Cuba, right? <laughs> um, but two of them, two of the most common ones that people fill out on this form that you're required to fill out when traveling to Cuba um, is either for humanitarian reasons, as in supporting the Cuban people. Um, so you could just say, oh, I have some items to donate and, and you plan on donating them while in Cuba, that makes it legal. Or the second most common one is journalistic purposes, which I legitimately have. Um, but I mean, everyone who, who fills out those forms generally goes with the first option for humanitarian reasons. And I've, I know a significant amount of people who've traveled to and from Cuba who are US citizens, and they've never been questioned by um, US immigration officials when coming back into the country. They just say, you know, what did you do in Cuba? Um, like they, they really don't get into details if, if they question anybody at all. There, there is very, very little risk of being sanctioned. And are the Cubans resentful or they're friendly to Americans? Definitely friendly, definitely friendly. Um, and I think they're friendly because um, I think uh, mostly I'd like to believe it's genuine friendliness because they're just a warm people and they want to welcome people who are visiting Cuba and who are curious to learn about Cuba. But in a sad, in a, it's kind of a, a dark thing too that you notice after a, while, a little while in Cuba, it's, it's sort of like a thinly veiled desperation because these people know that you're a tourist, therefore they know you have money, therefore they know that they can make some business from you. So the, the friendliness, I think, is, is mostly genuine, but there is certainly um, an entrepreneurial aspect. They say, venga pa' acá, tome un café aquí, you know, please buy this coffee here at my friend's business. Um, please come visit my shop, buy some of my art, right? So they're certainly, they're certainly warm and welcoming. But I think a lot of it has to do um, with both the culture of, of Cuba, but also because they're trying to make money and survive, understandably so. Very good. I have one more question, and I, I'll let uh, Eric follow up. But I wanted to know for for sure. I know that Cuba has a lot of culture, music, art that they can uh, spread out around the world. But do they make any products that the rest of the world would want to buy? Hmm. Uh. Yeah, I think that they've got they've definitely got immediately come to mind um the first one isn't so much a product as much they got cigars <laughs> yeah actually three yeah so cigars definitely is one that they're known for 
Um, I was going to mention doctors because they had a thing, uh, sort of like a, a trade deal, an informal setup with Venezuela before that country completely collapsed, um, where they would export doctors for oil, as they, as they would kind of say, where they would provide trained medical professionals, send them to Venezuela and help improve Venezuela's um, public health system. And then Venezuela would in turn send cheap oil to Cuba. Um, so Cuba definitely has a very, very prestigious and respected uh, medical system. And believe it or not, despite their, their like lack of resources, they definitely do produce very, very, very good doctors and surgeons. Um, so that's one thing, the cigars definitely. And then uh, third thing I would say is art. I think that what's really unique about growing up in a communist country is that um, if, if there's any benefits of the few, this is one of them, that because there is no stigma with an artistic career and because there is no, there are no social classes and you're, you're, there's no concept of the starving artist, right? Like being an artist or having an artistic career isn't associated with poverty because everyone's poor. Um, everyone in Cuba tends to, uh, not everyone, but a lot of people tend to have an artistic hobby and this, they make some really good art. They make great paintings, sculptures. They have world-class ballerina shows. They've got the um, Buena Vista Social Club that makes amazing music. So art, in a nutshell, is is great. Awesome. So that's interesting. Yeah, though, I mean, one way to look at the, the fact that people have all this time for art is to to see that, you know, whether or not you're a talented artist and so much of your time is idle, right, you can <laughs> do some art. Definitely. Yeah. And, um, and of course, you know, that when you say there aren't starving artists, there's kind of an asterisk by that, right? Because I think yeah. the average non-starving yeah. artist in Cuba is probably starving by U.S. standards. Yep. <laughs> I so, would certainly agree. Yeah. But, but anyway, yeah, so we've, we've spoken to you for about half an hour now, so that's uh, pretty much the target length of our podcast. Um, do you have any final uh, words about Cuba or uh, advice to people who want to visit that you haven't covered already? Um, no, that about covers it. I guess I'll just conclude by saying uh, go to Cuba, learn about Cuba, don't take U.S. dollars, and watch my film. <laughs> all right all of them great advice and uh, remember to email me the uh the link to your film website and i'll be looking forward to watching it when it comes out yeah absolutely eric uh thank you again for your time to both of you and um yeah i just appreciate uh being part of this i'll let my friends know about your podcast all right great thanks thank a lot thank you Jesus. all right all right good night. take care gentlemen have a good night As you can see, things are looking somewhat hopeful in Cuba. I hope Jesus is right that the opening of their society will continue to accelerate due to exposure to the outside world. Jesus's website, jesusarsolavega.myportfolio.com, is also linked in the show notes on our website in case you're not quite sure how to spell his name. By the way, we are interested in doing more interview-type episodes as well. If you've lived in or spent time in a communist country and would be willing to chat on this podcast, email us at eric at storiesofcommunism.com. Also, we'd like to thank listeners Glenn, JJ Gids, and MS Necken for posting nice reviews in Apple Podcasts. Please consider posting one of your own if you enjoy the podcast. And this concludes your story of communism for today.